Climate change is already affecting our everyday lives. As we experience more frequent and severe wildfires, droughts and heat waves, floods and extreme storms. The world's climate scientists warn that we have less than 10 years to limit climate change catastrophe. We need to urgently reduce emissions while investing too in adaptation, preparing for an unstable future. The temperatures across the Arctic have been increasing at a rate that is about twice the global average. The winter of 2021 is writing itself into the record books tonight. Large swaths of the nation are seeing the coldest weather in memory. In California, the August complex fire has become the largest fire in state history. The storm that's just ravaged parts of southern Africa is possibly the worst weather-related disaster ever to hit the southern hemisphere. Australia is seeing extreme weather events due to rapid climate change. Cities are at the forefront of climate change. They are major producers of emissions, and, as home to more than half the world's population, they are also where the human impact will be most severely felt. How can innovations in engineering and infrastructure help us reimagine and redesign our cities to become sources of green innovation? And how can cities become more resilient in a climate-stressed future? This is New Foundations, a podcast about innovation and social impact from the Economist Intelligence Unit and supported by Pictet Wealth Management. We thank them for their support. For more than half a century, people by their millions have moved away from rural areas to seek a better life. But this rapid urbanisation has happened faster than cities have been able to adapt their infrastructure for the new arrivals, especially in countries where climate change poses the greatest risks. My deepest concern is, is that fragility, and urban fragility in particular, appears to be deepening. And it appears to be deepening in those parts of the world that are most susceptible to climate change and especially increasing heat and rising sea levels. This is Robert Mugger, specialist in cities, security, migration and technology, and co-founder of the Igarapé Institute, a Brazilian think tank focusing on security and development. If I take the first megatrend, urbanization, I think it's important to think about that by 2050, three quarters of the world are going to live in cities. That's about 6.5 billion people. And most of that growth is going to happen in Africa and Asia, not in North America and Europe, where we've already in a way reached peak urbanization. And people are moving just to the 600 or so big global cities that people talk about, or even big mega cities. Actually, most people are going to be moving to secondary and tertiary cities. And this is a radical change from where we were just a century ago, when less than one-fifth of the world's population lived in urban areas. And I don't think we fully grasp that fact, this extraordinary turbo urbanization that we're going to see. The second trend is climate change, which is also accelerating, including in ways that we're still only starting to grasp. But what we're going to see in terms of shifts in our climate are increases in extreme temperatures, uh, rising seas, uh, massive coastal erosion. Uh, and we can expect uh, an increase in the intensity and frequency of these disasters. So what does all this mean for cities? I think first it means that cities are going to feel the crunch. Uh, <laughs> there where most people are increasingly concentrated. The effects of climate are going to be, I think, felt in some cases most acutely. And so climate-proofing our cities is going to be not a nice add-on. It's going to be essential. And the second, I think, conclusion that one draws from this confluence of trends is that cities have to get prepared. They need to double down on mitigation. 
you know, cities are responsible for about 70% of all greenhouse gas emissions, but they have to get a heck of a lot smarter about adaptation. And that means rethinking, reimagining, revisiting city design, zoning, uh, construction, energy matrices, all of the rest. The challenge for cities is to somehow balance the need to offer all inhabitants the services and infrastructure they need while radically reducing their carbon footprint and contending with the vagaries of climate change. This calls for deep and radical changes to everything from greening the electricity grid to cleaning the air. We have a fairly good idea of what cities need to do, but how we do it and how we structure that work within large city organizations, that's one of the biggest challenges cities are facing. Judah Raukin is the Interim Director for the Carbon Neutral Cities Alliance, or CNCA, a network of cities aiming to cut greenhouse gas emissions 80% by 2050. What carbon neutrality means in this setting is that it will require transformative, uh, radical climate action that in the end will transform what we think of as a city and then the core city systems, if you want. That is transport, buildings, energy, food, waste, etc. They need to electrify the whole transport system. They need to get fossil fuels out of buildings, so no natural gas heating, no no petroleum sources in the heating system and cooling system if you want. They need to make the waste system less linear and, and so that you can extract more resources from what is today considered waste, find ways to do that and find the city's role in doing that. So, well, if I want to brag a little bit about my own city, then uh, the city of Oslo how it's leading the way in electrifying transport, starting with uh, private vehicles, now moving into larger vehicles in terms of freight, phasing out fossil fuels of all public transit, including taxis. That is sort of a prime example of how a city and the national government can work together to transform a system, because the city hasn't done it alone, but the city has definitely facilitated that transport electrification work. So a a lot needs to be done, and these are obviously quite ambitious targets. How seriously are cities really taking this issue? Uh, They're definitely taking it serious, and we see an increasing number of cities that do set carbon neutrality targets. I mean, when CNCA was founded six years ago, only 17 cities had actual carbon neutrality targets. Now that number is close to 100. Now, of course, with thousands of cities around the world, this is not happening fast enough. So CNCA, with our work in sort of funding and investing in cities that are ready to develop, adopt, and implement policies, because that is where cities can lock in long-term change, is through policy work. We're not going to get to carbon neutrality by through pilots. This needs to be have commitment through policy. And what's happening in the in the private sector? Well, I mean, being a political economist, I would say that the market tends to respond to the regulations that it is exposed to. At the same time, large corporations have a a large role to play. Now you see that we talk more and more about the circular economy, how we need to move away from this extraction, consume and waste uh, economy that we're all uh, used to. And that means keeping resources in the system longer not throw them out because we're tired of them for some reason. So I think IKEA is, of course, an example that many turn to. But what they are doing in terms of becoming circular 
for a, a huge retailer like IKEA by I think it's 2030 or 2040. That is impressive. If they're able to pull that off, then that's one of the most impressive things that I've seen. I mean, still, their sort of business model is still based on that we as consumers should buy their goods. But if those goods are made from uh, resources already existing in the system and not extracting new resources, then that is an example to be followed. One of the challenges of reusing resources is simply keeping track of them. To further the idea of the circular economy, one concept attracting attention is that of a material passport, which documents and attributes tangible financial value to materials that make up our buildings, to encourage their reuse and redeployment. We realise that waste is a material in anonymity without identity. Dutch architect Thomas Rao developed the concept and has started putting it into practice. So if we give all materials a um, registered identity, it, will, it, it can never be waste. I mean, the recycling company, the only thing they do is they say, OK, waste is coming. I said, OK, I know you. Your name is not waste. Your name is copper. And your name is not waste, but your waste is steel. And if it's not good for the business model, they put it in the waste incinerator. So it's, it's a kind of a material crematorium, a waste incinerator. So that's where we start to, to, to write down all materials in our building, to registrate them, to give them an identity so that they can never be waste. Material passports aim to maximise the lifetime value of materials and components and create incentives for sustainable and circular construction. Bringing together data on the characteristics of materials, including their condition and their reusability. Sabina Oberhuber worked on the concept and together with Thomas Rao published the book Material Matters. She thinks materials are only part of the solution. I think certainly for, for circular um, cities we have uh, much, much more to consider than, than only circular buildings. I think we have to really rethink the way we design cities the way we live together, the way we share spaces, the way we share mobility, um, what we do with our water cycles, what we do with uh, um, our waste treatment, how we uh, do, uh, for example, use the fertile materials, potentially fertile materials which are produced in a city and which at the moment are often burnt rather than harvested. So there is so much more which comes into play in a circular city. But I think materials is a very, very large part of what we have to think about. It seems daunting for cities to undertake such comprehensive transformation, steeling themselves against the impacts of climate change, decarbonising their infrastructure and improving living standards all at the same time. But there are hopeful signs of progress from unlikely places. Robert Mugger again. What we're also starting to, to, to understand and, and appreciate and reflect on are some of the innovations that have already been tested out and that serve cities well in the wake of the pandemic and also in the context of a changing climate. And I think, I think some of the more interesting cases are happening really on some of the where the front lines of climate change are, are occurring. And that's, to, you know, Latin America, Asia and Africa. A good example is Curitiba in Brazil, which is uh, one of the world's most unequal countries. But Curitiba back 30, 40 years ago set out a multi-decade master plan 
not just to reduce inequality and redress poverty, but to really go green and invest in public goods. And, and it pioneered at the time rapid bus transit and congestion pricing schemes, as well as really bold recycling and waste management programs that had enormous co-benefits, not just on health or on pollution, but also in terms of mitigating future climate change. And now it's considered one of the greenest cities in Latin America. Another example is, is Singapore, which you know, is one of the densest cities in the world and is also today a model of green planning. You know, the 1960s and 70s, people don't remember, but Singapore was this very dirty, congested city with open sewers and slums. Uh, and over the last couple of decades, it set aside hundreds of acres, thousands of acres, uh, planted millions of trees and set out urban gardens to act as a kind of lungs for the city. And it's also created extraordinary freshwater reserves, um, which have served it well. Seoul is another extraordinary example um, where the city has actually grown fourfold since the 1980s, but its geographic footprint hasn't changed. And the reason for that is that 90% of the population are using public transport, rail, road, water, bicycles, and the rest to get to work or to engage in recreation. This podcast is supported by Pictet Wealth Management. Christophe Donnet, Head of Asset Allocation and Macro Research at Pictet, sees opportunities for new technology to reduce cities' carbon footprint without impacting citizens' quality of life. There has been a huge concentration of populations in urban areas in recent decades. On current trends, Cities will be home to nearly 70% of the world's population in 2050, up from 55% today. This means cities are major energy users, consuming two-thirds of the world's energy and emitting 70% of the CO2. We need our cities to be dynamic and to drive economic growth. There is a reason millions of people try so hard to migrate to cities. They offer unrivaled economic opportunity. Curbing the harmful emissions produced by cities is a major challenge for local governments. But it isn't the only one. We need to combine the carbonisation of cities with a clear focus on spatial inequalities. We think cities can be part of the long-term solutions we are looking for. We now have an opportunity to create a new economic vision a chance for political leaders to create a new future and a new vision. Innovation to build cleaner cities can also address the lack of economic growth and high-quality jobs. We believe green cities could even be a chance to deal with two of the main flaws of capitalism as a whole, inequality and environmental damages. As urban populations swell, energy usage increases, putting greater strain on the environment. So what measures can be taken? At the city level, is where the more specific measures can be taken. We have seen a number of cities promote the green agenda, from rolling out electric and hybrid vehicles in the public transport stock, through to expanding the use of cycling lanes and pedestrian areas. Smart city technology is also reducing waste 
and optimizing public services to reduce the urban energy footprint. Cities are able to phase out harmful emissions through measures like congestion charges and taxes on dirtier engine types. As digital connectivity improves, the Internet of Things will help cities reduce their environmental footprint exponentially, pumping value back into the circular economy. That was Christophe Donnet of Pictet Wealth Management. And we thank Pictet for their support of this podcast. By 2070, it's estimated that 19% of the world's landmass will be uninhabitable hot zones, forcing billions of people to find new places to live. Accommodating burgeoning populations while pursuing a green transition will only add to the challenges facing cities. There's no doubt that climate change is, is going to profoundly affect both migration, the voluntary movement of people, and, and displacement, the involuntary relocation of people. And many of those people who will be displaced by climate change will be moving towards cities. And, and the forecasts are, are pretty staggering. And it's clearly multifactorial. It's clearly complex. There's an enormous amount of uncertainty. I think the overwhelming conclusion uh, of demographers and climate scientists and economists and and others who've been involved in these debates, is that we are going to see a worsening scenario, um, whether or not we we do anything, but that there are ways, there are policy moves that can be made that could lessen the extent of climate migration, as well as the pain and suffering and trauma associated with uh, climate migration. Um, we already are seeing large numbers of people who are moving uh, as a result of changes in their climate and the numbers are several times higher than the numbers of people who are moving uh, as refugees or people seeking asylum. But, you know, it's not just happening in lower or middle-income countries. We're starting to see people forced to move also in mature Western democracies or in reasonably stable, uh, more autocratic systems. Uh, and so this is an issue that I think every policymaker has to grapple with. And, and cities who are often the bellwether, you know, who often are the ones who uh, first sense when changes are afoot, uh, are starting to react. And we're seeing mayors uh, beginning to forge coalitions specifically around this issue of climate migration. If these cities are going to be sustainable, then the key to that sustainability is to integrate new populations into their sustainability planning and to recognise the role of migrants, the role of people making their new home in cities. Neil Adger is a professor of human geography at the University of Exeter and was a coordinating lead author on human security for the International Panel on Climate Change's most recent report on global warming. Many cities that are growing really quickly are facing major challenges because we have seen in cities around the world that people tend to, new migrants tend to cluster in low-income neighbourhoods, in places that themselves are uh, exposed to environmental, poor environmental conditions, have poor public health, um, and uh, perhaps have very large informal economies. So these cities that are growing very rapidly have particular challenges in this area. But we've been working in Bangladesh, actually in the second city of Bangladesh, the port city of Chittagong, which has grown from less than 2 million to more than 5 million people 
just in the last 30 years. And it's done so by major waves of waves of immigration into the city for people basically working in the garment industry and in other um, uh, manufacturing, light manufacturing sectors. And um, so that city has, you know, faced the, the, faces the situation where 80 or 90 percent of the population wasn't born there. So what's their attachment to the city? How are they are they are they excluded from the decision making processes? You know, who is the city actually run for? And that city has uh, embraced new styles of planning and gone out and um, talked to migrant populations and talked to minority populations and actually tried to build into their master plan um, some considerations of how those new migrant populations see the city and see their futures in them. So I think there are some uh, good examples of progressive planning and uh, integration uh, with this key idea in mind that the, the effectiveness and the speed of uh, integration of new populations may be one of the keys to sustainability. Planners have to ensure that technical decisions on issues like green infrastructure or urban redesign ultimately serve citizens in their day-to-day lives. This requires the inclusion of diverse perspectives in decision-making, says Trude Raukin from the Carbon Neutral Cities Alliance. We have to lead with people, and that is a big change that you see now in the CNCA cities, is that a people-centered climate action planning. If you look at, let me just give you a quick example from the city of Portland. They, um, they are the whitest city in the US, um, close to 80% of the population is white, but they also have a large uh, population of color in frontline communities that are have not necessarily been sort of included in the climate action work, if you want. They, a lot of cities ask themselves the question, how can we get more people to ride the bus? I mean, transportation is such a huge emission source for cities. Portland turned around and said, we need to look at who cannot ride the bus safely. Asking that question, who cannot ride the bus safely, made it clear that it's not just because of convenience that people are not riding the bus. There are clear safety issues for people of color or other minority groups that will keep you from riding the bus. And centering their climate work around the frontline communities and making sure that climate action is for all, that carbon neutrality is for all, that is the only way that we're going to get to the carbon neutral or zero emission city, it needs to be something that is that everyone can participate in, not just people with high education and, uh, and who are interested in buying the latest technology in terms of an EV, an e-bike, etc. Neil Adger again. City planners are looking for solutions to make their cities low carbon and sustainable, tend to focus on the architecture and on the urban form. But getting that urban form and that architecture right and making it livable and making it usable so that the populations actually use it and in safe and sustainable ways and it creates opportunities for employment and don't become white elephants is actually quite a uh, quite a challenge. So I take my hats off to the planners who are attempting to do this to take the perspectives of wide varieties of people within their jurisdiction and particularly green public space is incredibly important in the sorts of cities that we're working in, flood risk and other risks amplified by severe weather and climate change, which are huge public health issues. 
really need to be taken account of because large infrastructure projects tend to displace new populations, but they also tend to be at the brunt and at the receiving end. So if water is displaced from one area in the city, it has to end up somewhere and it tends to end up in the backyards of or in the homes of the uh, low income populations. So there are many challenges and dilemmas, but integrating both the human perspective and people's use of space and understanding how they actually make use of cities alongside this desire for green and resilient infrastructure is really important. One innovative solution to the urban water crisis is the idea of sponge cities, an architectural planning and design philosophy that strengthens cities' ability to absorb and reuse water. Well, sponge city is a nature-based solution to solve the problem of flood and urban inundation and associated problems like pollution and habitat recovery and climate resiliency. Hong Zhang Yu is the Dean of Peking University's College of Landscape Architecture and head of the Beijing-based design firm Turinscape. It is totally opposite to this industrial thinking based on industrial technology. It is about how you respect nature, how you adapt to the natural process, and how you can slow down the process of water but not speed up. How you can use water, recycle the water, um, make a, a maximum use of water for the habitat recovery, for the recharge of aquifer, and for cleansing of uh, nutrient in the water. For example, it's important to understand that Sponge City is based on thousands of years of experience dealing with water. In the mountain area, for example, in the, uh, the Chinese Farmers know how to terrace in the ground to create to create terraces for rice paddies. At the delta area, our ancient people already know how to create pond dike system to make the landscape productive, safe, at the same time beautiful. Well, in the hilly area, you will see our farmers and sisters already know how to cultivate the hilly landscape. 20% of the land have to be given to water to create pond system. Now, all this is about adaptation to different kind of topography and, uh, uh, and water situation in, in China. Today's idea about a better city, we call the ecological city or eco-city, uh, ecological urbanism, is to give nature more space and let nature do the work. We have built examples that the city can be built upon the ecological infrastructure. For example, you don't need even concrete or pipe drainage system. You can have a drainage system like a landscape, right? Which can save a lot of money. You can save a lot of nature and also make nature more holistically, more beautiful, more productive, more are sustainable. You have to keep in mind that modern urbanization is just uh, 200, 300 years history. This kind of city is not necessarily sustainable. It's not, not necessarily the best or better living environment for human beings. We may have a better way to inhabit that, or, or we may have a better way 
we call it urbanization or, or a kind of a civilization, a post-urban civilization, I would describe. While challenges facing our cities are immense, there is plenty of grounds for optimism, says Robert Mugger, as mayors, progressive companies and civic leaders drive progress. What gives me hope, I have to end with hope, is that we are, however, seeing uh, networks of cities starting to step up in the last half decade in particular, um, and really finding their mojo, <laughs> uh, you know, learning to work in cooperation um, because cities typically don't stray uh, left or right. They typically are focused on very practical, pragmatic challenges. Uh, and so I think, you know, we're seeing a, a new generation of mayors in particular, of, of civic entrepreneurs, uh, of enlightened business people, uh, who I think are starting to understand that by working in partnership, um, by expressing solidarity between cities, and by sharing and stealing ideas, uh, that they can actually initiate uh, some really catalytic change. But we're going to need to see a lot of that uh, if we're going to weather the storms. That is it for this episode of New Foundations. If you liked what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks again to Pictay Wealth Management for their support. You can find out more about the series, as well as articles and further reading, at newfoundations.economist.com. <laughs>